0: Set of questions for me. These are more notes that I just made when I through the book, just reading the book.
1: How many chucks could a woodchuck chuck? <laughs> exactly. Assuming a spherical woodchuck.
0: What is the equation for the upper bound of possible woodchucks?
1: <laughs> just... <laughs> well, yeah, you have the flux of woodchucks, in it, which we'll write as f <laughs> woodchuck, and then minus. And is it a conservative? You know, can woodchucks are we <laughs> conservative or dissipative woodchuck process? But what is dissipative? Mean? Uh, that you're losing what 's frictional oh, okay. You're losing wood, You're losing chucks When the wood chucks Chucks Right And con- yeah. conservative Means it's conserving It's conserving Right So the chucks Have to go somewhere So the chucks in Have to equal the chucks out Right? It's a zero subchuck game. It's a zero subchuck game. But however, if it's a dissipative woodchuck thing, then yeah, some of the woodchucks, which is really it should be because there are no actual conservatives. Second law of thermodynamics would demand that
0: some amount of the chucks that the woodchuck was chucking would be lost. Right. Anyone who proposes a perpetual woodchuck machine. <laughs> That's
1: what it would be, right?
0: You, can't you know, be cannot chucking. patent the perpetual woodchuck machine. Yeah. There you go. All right. Should we use that as a pre credit sequence? <laughs> oh, damn it. We, if I'd been on mic. Uh. I, I was listening, it, it came through all right. <laughs>
2: Probably science.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. There's Andy. Andy Wood. Oh, almost landed that one. Yep, yep, I'm Andy Wood. Today, today is a good day. Today is a doubly good day. Firstly, it's a good day because while I was waiting for Andy to come home, and let me into the apartment I saw a man in his I'm going to say Mid to late 30s Fall off a skateboard And graze his knee Oh that's nice <laughs> Oh that's so sad a treat It was, treat. was like... and, and it was In particular good Because he was showing off To his girlfriend at the time oh. So it was okay.
2: There is an age Where you should stop Unless yeah. you're Tony Hawk Unless yeah, you're Tony unless Hawk Unless,
0: you're Tony. Yes, unless yeah. you've been
1: doing it Your whole life At some point you're like You know I should not get on the skateboard Now Yeah <laughs> Yeah.
0: And it's a double joy because that voice you just heard is Adam Frank Who is a professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester uh, a, cult, a commentator, uh, on-air commentator for All Things Considered I commentate Co-founder of NPR's 13.7 Cosmos and Culture blog uh, And more importantly, the author of the brand new book Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds and the Fate of the Earth Hey Adam, how's it going? It's great to be here guys Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Okay. And also, the other credit that I missed off is you were a consultant for Doctor Strange. I was a consultant for, yeah, Marvel's Doctor Strange. Best day ever. Well, how, uh, how hands-on are
1: you in those days? What are they, what are they we, asking we,
0: you? We have spoken to, we've had Sean Carroll on the show right. before, who I know you know, and actually gave one of the blurbs for the book. Right. And he he's also consulted on a couple of Marvel things as the I
2: think it was the, the Tron, uh, Tron uh, Thor, Dark something, because there was a, a tangent to dark energy slash dark matter I think
1: it was the but, first Thor because oh, was it? They, okay. the Einstein Rosen bridge which is the oh, r- the okay. rainbow bridge on the Thor that was his yeah he made that link really uh, so yeah. they wouldn't have done that in the I don't think so I think that was that was Sean saying like hey you needed you know you, that's always the thing with it they need a device like what and this is what's so great about the Marvel movies is that you know sometimes people when they find out that I was a science consultant they're like oh your job was to sh- make sure the science was correct I'm like it's a superhero movie <laughs> I'm right, right. like what do you expect man make yeah. sure the
0: magic yeah,
1: that's exactly is physically correct. Um you know what's beautiful I think about the Marvel movies is they actually have a lot of respect for the process of science or the idea of science uh-huh. or most of all the excitement of science. So what you uh what the you know when they bring people like me or Sean in what they're looking at is to try and create their universe um in a uh, with enough science that you end up with rules that they then the characters tend right. to obey. So yeah, obviously
0: right? this is it's superheroes it's magic it's nonsense but the idea is that you create a logical framework and then you're there to make sure it's consistent within that, within the rules that you've created. Right,
1: or at least to give it enough science that there's stuff they can, you know, from the real science world, that there's stuff they can use to build off of. So there were two things that um, uh, uh, Scott Derrickson, who is the director, who I just actually had uh, uh, coffee with a couple days ago, he needed two things. One, we wanted to talk about consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. What the role of, you know, consciousness, because where does... Uh, where does Doctor Strange get his powers in a Marvel Universe that is really science based right I mean Marvel Universe you know Thor is not a god he's an alien in some sense right so how do you situate um, d- uh, Doctor Strange in that universe and so what we sort of in our discussions and this is where uh, Scott wanted to go Was that you know, There's so little We understand about The nature of consciousness That there's a lot of room there For, the, you know, for there to be Other things going on sure. So particularly That scene When he When the um, Ancient one Kind of schools him On That there's more Tilda Swinton
2: with, uh, Yes yeah, Right
1: yeah. Right You know Because in the movie Doctor Strange Is a redu- you know, Hardcore reductionist You are nothing But your neurons End of story And there's that great scene Where she sort of Pushes him Punches him out Into his astral body And so we worked on that scene You uh-huh. know A, a lot And then the other thing was the multiverse. You know, the multiverse actually plays a big role both in Marvel in general. And and Doctor Strange was the first place they were introducing the idea of the multiverse. So, you know, we just talked a lot about different kinds of multiverses in science and how the idea might be used.
2: And you you avoided going the direction of, I think it was the prequels that first introduced the sort of cellular basis for the force in Star oh, Wars God. that pissed everyone off, the yeah. midochlorians.
1: Midichlor- Midochloria. Right. And that was an example of a movie that created a rule and then it was like, eh it sucks. I'm not doing this anymore. It's like, you can't do that. You just introduced it. Yeah.
2: And now we're Let supposed to magic. And, and then yeah. you just gave Let up. It be magic. It doesn't have to be explainable right. by some version of biology in your right.
0: universe or so, so before we get into the book, because the book really is more about astrobiology and, and climate change. And climate change. And I call it alien- climate change for aliens. Right. Uh, so, what, before we get into deep into that, wh- what's your research when you're not writing a book like this? What do you work on up in Rochester? And-
1: yeah, I am a, a, I'm a, I'm a computational fluid dynamicist, you know, or a computational astro, fluid dynamical astrophysicist. I have a research group, and what we do is we develop state of the art numerical methods for simulating things like uh the collapse of a gas cloud into a star Ah. or the ejection of material you know when the sun dies it'll become what's called a planetary nebula it'll blow most of its mass back into space and form these beautiful structures so you know my the codes that my group builds we use to simulate the interaction of gases and magnetic fields um and so like Planets. Actually, we're starting to do a lot with planets because many of the planets, not many, but, but um, the planets we're interested in, the ones we can see, many of them are on what are called hot orbits. They're on very tight orbits around their star. Uh-huh. So they're close to the star, and they're receiving a lot of energy, uh, uh, radiation from the star. So they, their atmospheres boil off into space. And, right. and that actually may end up being a very important process for uh, for low-mass stars, what are called M-dwarfs, where you know the habitable zone where the the place where you know you could have liquid water is very close to the star's surface so those kinds of these processes of of boiling away an atmosphere may determine whether the planet is habitable or not so
0: well let's get into that cuz that's also something i want to talk about in a bit uh that's relates to venus and the runaway greenhouse effect right, of there right but so let's 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 dive into the book so the okay. book is sort of relating what we can learn about the earth and the climate and what we should be doing and how we came about to studies of other planets. Right, right. My thesis here... So, you know, I do, I'm a professional scientist, but I also do a lot of
1: science, writing, science, you know, communication, you know, writing for NPR, being on NPR, doing stuff for the New York Times. And I did a lot on climate because climate has actually one of my first jobs between graduate, undergraduate and graduate was I worked at a climate installation where Jim Hansen was. Um, so I've known about climate change, you know, way before kind of in some sense anybody else did. And, you know, I've dealt with so much climate denial, you know, I mean, right. having it, which is like the most frustrating thing Ever. And what I realize is that, you know, as clearly now we have climate denial at the highest levels, that um, the story we're telling about climate is wrong in some sense. It's not reaching people. You can show people graphs as much as you want, that fundamentally there's something about the way we've been communicating or thinking about climate change that just people can't understand. And what I realized was, you know, from the astrobiological perspective, that there's this whole other way of looking at climate change that completely flips the script, that all the old, you know, you know, whenever you get into a climate denial argument, it's going to be the same stupid things, did we change the climate, didn't we, and you know, there's just almost, the argument never goes anywhere, but I realized there's this other way of looking at it, which is the astrobiological perspective, that just is, climate change becomes something entirely different, and is so that's becomes what I'm trying to... Like
2: apolitical out. at that point, you can remove people's...
1: That's exactly what I think yeah. it is, I think... Because it is apolitical, right? Yeah, it should be. (laughs) It should be, right? I mean, you know, there's policy. Now, policy is always going to involve. Politics, but the basic facts of what is happening is something that uh, yeah you know the, as I say a carbon dioxide molecule doesn't care who you voted for you know so um, so that's really the the emphasis of the book and what I realized in the and I started doing research on this as well uh, you know we had we had four or five different papers that we were starting to research the astrobiology as we call, so for me the the formal title of the field would be this new field we're trying to create is the astrobiology which is you know life and its possibilities in space of the Anthropocene. And the Anthropocene is this new geologic era that we've pushed the Earth into through human activity.
0: Right, so that specifically, so there's been all these eras before on the Earth, and Anthropo, same as anthropology, This, this is the era where the existence, the climate, and the state of the Earth has been directly changed by life being on it. Not and, no, and humans being human life. And so
1: that's one of the most important things. So a lot of times when you talk to people about climate change, they can't sort of wrap their minds around the fact that you know, oh, just if I throw my you know my my uh, plastic bottle in the street, it has an effect. How can my how can it have an effect? How can we have such? How can human beings have such a huge effect on this giant planet? But it turns out that life has been having this profound effect on the planet the entire history of the planet. So, you know, the Great Oxidation Event 2.5 billion years ago, it's remarkable to think that for the first 2 billion years or so of Earth's habitation, we had life on Earth, and if you'd landed your spaceship back on those days and walked outside, the first thing that would happen is you'd die from asphyxiation. Right. Right? Right. There was air, but there was no oxygen. The oxygen came about because of blue-green bacteria developing this new kind of photosynthesis that farted out oxygen. And that... And right? So there is an example of life completely changing the atmosphere and therefore the planet. And it's, it's for me, the Ur er example of like, yeah, look, this happens all the time. This meaning
2: uh, other planets must... The same thing must be happening all the time? Or well,
1: here, in this case, what I'm saying is that even in Earth's history you can see that successful oh, that species... even
2: pre-civilization, right. pre-human species are right. having an right. effect whether they want to or not because of their presence. Even like yeah.
1: pre-multicellular. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. That. By, so the first thing people have to understand... So, okay, if we want to step, take the big step back, there have been three revolutions in astrobiology over the last 20 or 30 years that have direct consequences for thinking about climate change and, and our role in it or our place in it. The first one is... Um, the uh, discovery of exoplanets, right? Over the <laughs> right. 3,000 years, nobody knew whether it was a single which, other planet. Which
0: we've discussed a fair bit on, on other episodes of this show. This su- absolute sudden sea change in the size. Right up until very recently, it was thought that maybe there's a couple, like maybe the odd galaxy has a few, and suddenly. It's gone from, man there may or may not be any, or there may be very few, to suddenly, oh, they are everywhere. Everywhere,
1: right. And so, you know, I, so in the book, I sort of chart that history. So, you know, you can see the Greeks arguing about this 3,000 years ago, right? Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, there was like, so, so uh, Epicurus was thought that planets were, and life was common. Aristotle's like, no way. And then you see over history, you know, the... Sliding back and forth, that the church didn't you know medieval church was against the idea of there being any other worlds, um, and then by the time you get to newton after newton there was people started to think like oh yeah there's a lot of other worlds and there's lots of uh, lots of life but then by the time but by, by the 1900s it's flipped back and that was because people thought that the main way you would make planets was uh, two stars passing very close to each other and sort of pulling out like taffy some mass that then oh. would turn into a star uh, or into a planet and since those collisions you could show are so rare people up until like the 1950s mid 50s or so thought that planets were just going to be you know only they're going to happen one in a trillion times you know one in a trillion stars would have planets uh so you know yeah it was and and what's the amazing thing is you can see there's at least a four or five times you can see in the history of astronomy people ruining their careers by claiming that they found a planet
0: right right there was a hang on i'm, I'm now missing jjc to quite, i was gonna say
1: c yeah J, jjc um he was a, an astronomer who everybody hated he was the big can I curse on this? Yes, yes exactly so you absolutely can. Yeah, no, he was the biggest dick ever in astronomy. <laughs> no, you can go worse than that. You can go worse than that, yeah. um, And so he, you know, he made this claim that he, and this is in the 1870s, he made a claim that he'd found a, a planet. and
0: you know, the, He was hated by the science community, but he was like the popular scientist right, of the day. he was so, the
1: Carl Sagan, Sagan of the day, but all the astronomers thought that he was the most arrogant, impossible to deal with, over bloated... That uh, you know that could exist, and so it turns out that his you know his claim was completely wrong, and it was particularly that that ruined his career. So then we come up to 1995 when the first true discovery of an exoplanet uh, or a planet orbiting another star. And that was like, oh, my God, you know. And then very quickly, you went from 1 to 10 to 200. And then, what is it, 2008? I'm not really sure when the Kepler mission launched. Somewhere around there, late uh, late, late 2000-ish. Um, and the Kepler mission, which was looking... Uh, but it was looking for transits. You know, it was looking for when the, the tiny blip uh, change in the light output of the star as the planet
0: passed on, on a regular interval. Because regular interval. Your light is, the light from that star is being very briefly slightly blocked by this planet that's crossing in front of it.
1: Right. And you can watch, you know, multiple times as this happens to confirm that it's happening. And that just blew, you know, the, now it was, it was planet finding wholesale. Right, where before it was kind of a retail operation right and and that changed everything and that from that from that data we now know that every star in the sky pretty much when you go out and look at stars pretty much everyone you see has a family of worlds orbiting it
2: and if you haven't actually seen evidence of it, you've seen enough to extrapolate that, like maybe those are just on an orbit where it hasn't right. lined up yet to see it, but they probably yeah. all do. It's so. t-
1: you have got enough statistics now. You know, you've looked at enough stars and see, you know, that, that the statistics tell you that yes, pretty much every star in the sky has. I didn't, a family of Family. We've goals. talked to, to other exoplanet
2: um, astronomers before, but I didn't realize that assumption. Yeah. that It was every single yeah. one. Yeah. The so only stars. ones
1: which won't, and it's still this is a little unclear. Are the this, the really massive stars stars that are like ten. Or twenty or sixty times the mass of the sun. They're so hot that you can imagine it's possible that those ones don't form planets. But you know they're very rare. You know mm-hmm. there's not many massive stars. And
0: then yeah, stars. you talk about there's there's complex multi's. Yeah, right. Somebody, I,
1: that's one of the amazing things is that the, these solar systems don't look anything like ours. We are the weirdos, right? Right. And so complex is kind of multi practice.
0: is like a, a collection of these planets that form together. Right. Or,
1: well, I you know, I mean, they, they prob- the planets always form together in the sense that we think planet formation happens in a disk. Right. Uh, that, form, you know, the star collapses from a gas cloud. There's a disk of material that also forms and inside the disk pebbles collide to form rocks and boulders, et etc., et cetera, until you get a...
0: Multiplied by several million years. And- yeah.
1: Yeah, it's usually... And it's about that. It's about 10 million years to build a, a, a planet. But... um The complex multis are one example of these solar systems that look nothing like ours. And you've got three or four planets that are orbiting like basically they're orbiting so on such tight orbits that it's basically, you know, when they come Pass each other. It's the distance between us and the moon, or maybe three times the distance between us oh, and okay. the moon, right? You know, and like think about Mars, right? Mars is you know pretty much the closest planet. Um, maybe Venus might be slightly closer, but but you know, it, and it takes it would take us months to get to to uh, Mars, right? Rather right? than the several days that it exactly came. right. It took three days to get to the moon. So if there is any life on these uh, planets, they have this possibility of being multi. You know, they'll become multi-species or multi-planet way before we could ever. Because you could literally almost hop with Apollo level technology from one planet to the other.
0: Right and then there's other thing they've discovered like a super super saturn as well. Yeah, that was
1: actually at Rochester. The guy who discovered the super saturn was uh, Eric Mamajak at who was at Rochester at the time. Um so yeah, this is uh, you know and they could and they found that because they saw the transit. They saw the little blip of uh, the light blot out as the planet passed in front of the star, but they also saw these smaller dips as the rings and the ring gaps passed in front of the star. So, uh, And then we also have the most common planet in the universe is one that's not in our solar system. And that's kind of amazing. The super-Earths, planets that are like two or three times the mass of Earth and maybe maybe two or three times the, the, the radius of Earth. And this turns out to be the most common kind of planet you have, and yet we don't have one.
0: Right, because our solar system jumps straight from these terrestrial planets that are Earth or smaller, and right. then jump straight up to gas giants. Right, right. So you have uh, um,
1: you know, the, the Earth, you know, the, one, one Earth mass is the Earth, and then I think it's Uranus has, is like 14 times the mass of the Earth. So yeah, there's this gap between 1 and 14 that we have nothing, and most solar systems have will have a bunch of uh, super-Earths.
2: And those could still be. What is the definition of habitable zone? We've talked about this before. The Goldilocks area. Right. But like, is it about just distance from its sun, or composition, or a combination of all these things? Or like, it's really fundamentally its the right
1: distance. It's, it's fundamentally the the Goldilocks zone or the habitable zone, which is an old idea. It goes all the way back to the late fifties. Su Shu Hang Sheng who came up with it um, was you know this idea of the the, the the range of orbits around a particular star where you could pour water on the surface and it would stay in a pool, right? Mm-hmm. It wouldn't freeze or boil away. So, you know, the, the, sta- the classic idea has been those are the pl- – any planet that's in the habitable zone can have liquid water on its surface. And we think water is so impor- important for biochemistry, any kind of biochemistry, that that's where life – Will form, and that's been the focus of a lot of our efforts. However, we now know that you know moon, the moons of Jupiter and the moons of Saturn have liquid, you know, have uh, uh, oceans, subsurface oceans, um, and so that kind of changes things. Right, in right. Profound Europa way as well. having the
2: thick. Yeah, it's ice like a hundred. There's like ten
1: miles of ice or, or so, and then a hundred miles of ocean underneath it. And then a lot of the other, a lot of the other, almost all of the other big moons have probably you know sort of an ice mush, ice um, uh, uh, mud mix
0: that's kind of frozen. And then there could be subsurface oceans. Believe <laughs> so. This frozen. is even before we leave our solar system, let alone get into the rest of the galaxy.
1: Right, right. So actually, yeah, right. So I was talking about the three revolutions of of uh, yes astrobiology. So the first one was exoplanets, which we've now just talked a little bit about. The second one was the ex- exploration of our own solar system, right? We have touched every kind of body on this in the solar system. We've been to all the planets now, now that we've been to, to Pluto, which is, okay, is Pluto a planet or not? Let's not get into it. Um, no fights. Uh, we
2: had and, a friend and, of mine from college worked on the uh, the New Horizons flyby, oh, so yeah, we have to, he, yeah. he's not biased about whether it's a planet or not, but uh,
1: <laughs> due respect to him. Right, due respect, <laughs> yeah. So, um, But, you know, comets, asteroids, dwarf planets, Ceres, we have pretty much visited everything and and in particular the planets we've had you know we've had we've dropped things on there mars we've had rovers rolling around for years so you know we have we we have deeply studied planets and their climate so this is where we're circling back now to the the question of what's happening to us now we don't just have one planet earth you know, where we're that we're using to study climate. We have all these other planets that we've been studying in detail. As you pointed out that Venus, we know that the greenhouse effect uh went runaway
0: on Venus and, and probably boiled away its oceans. Right. And this was something that surprised me. So I didn't realize that it's thought one of the things that spiked the greenhouse effect in Venus is the water on Venus being broken up by ultraviolet radiation. Right,
1: right. So the Venus... And what we think happened or one of the best ideas for what
0: happened on Venus was that
1: the water was able to make... Water molecules, or water vapor, water gas, was able to make it all the way up to the top of of Venus's atmosphere where it got zapped by ultraviolet radiation, broken apart. The hydrogen leaves. You just got oxygen left. And so, you know, that's a water molecule that's never coming back. And over time that pretty much removed all of Venus's water. Venus may have had... Now people think Venus may have had an ocean on it at one point.
0: And that water was responsible for... So that I didn't realize there's a cycle that keeps the greenhouse effect in check normally that it, where the CO2, which causes the greenhouse effect, gets combines with the water molecules and some other molecules and becomes rock again, becomes... Right, the carbonates. It's called the carbonate cycle. And on Earth,
1: it's super important because what you get is... Um, uh the you know co2 belches out via volcanoes and you know becomes a greenhouse gas But then uh, because of um, weathering of rocks via rain, rain falls, runs across the rocks, breaks the rocks down, the CO2 gets bound back with that and forms new rocks. So now you're taking CO2. There's CO2 that went into the atmosphere that then the carbonate cycle via weathering, rain, puts back into the rocks. And so then you get this cycle. And then the rocks rocks
0: sink in and re-erupt as uh, new volcanoes. And the cycle continues.
1: The cycle continues. And so if you lose the water, you lose the... Um, the weathering, and so then the the carbonate cycle is broken, and then you get a you end up with a runaway greenhouse. Now, why doesn't this happen on Earth? Because on Earth we have what's called the cold trap at about um, the top of the, the the troposphere, I believe it is. I think it's you know around twelve miles above the uh, the Earth's surface. Um, you have uh, the the atmosphere goes becomes very cold, and so what that means is is that any water that's trying to make it up to the top of the atmosphere first runs into this refrigeration layer. And then it condenses and rains back down. So you can never get water molecules or very little water molecules up to the top of the Earth's atmosphere where the UV can break it apart. So what, but this is very important because what this, this idea of cycles, feedbacks, right, is the things we started learning from other planets. We learned that planets, as I say in the book, you have to learn how to think like a planet if you want to deal with climate change. And planets have, they're like vast machines, even without life. They are vast and complex machines that allow evolution and interesting things to happen. Again, even without life, there's evolution, right? There's weathering of rocks, there's volcanoes, there's change. Mm -hmm. Um, And so These feedbacks can either be positive or negative. So a positive, uh, a negative feedback loop is something where you make a change, the change feeds through the system, and it brings the change back. You know, it it eliminates the change, right? So you raise the temperature... But because of the feed, because it's a negative feedback loop, the things that happen bring the temperature back down a positive feedback loop is you change the temperature and then that changes other things and that leads to even more temperature change that's where you get a runaway right so right. more temperature the temperature change leads to more temperature change which leads to more temperature change right. and then you're screwed you know so um, so these feedback loops become the essential sort of mechanism for planets to, uh, to evolve and when you add so this now leads us to the third revolution which is er, understanding earth's history so first revolution was exoplanets second revolution was going to other planets and learning about how climate works you know as as a general generic phenomena and the third revolution was really unpacking earth's 4.5 billion year history of change and transitions including co-evolution that's the word of the day well there's many words co-evolution with the biosphere. The biosphere has been a major player in the history of the planet almost since life formed. You know, pretty quickly after what's called the Archean, pretty much life was, life was now, life hijacked the feedbacks. So instead of it just being the carbonate cycle, now you've got the biosphere and, you know, uh, uh, microbiota or whatever, you know, basically microbes and their, their chemical uh, interactions with the rest of the system. You know, increasing or decreasing weathering, or you know, with the Great Oxidation Event, um, the blue-green bacteria completely changing the atmosphere. So now the the um, the the feedbacks become richer and more complex, mm-hmm. uh, and and. This leads to the idea of you know the Gaia hypothesis and such, which I don't know if we want to touch right now. But that
0: we that, can absolutely, yeah, sure. we're jumping all around in the book. But why not? We don't have to. We don't have to follow the book's chronology. Yeah, yeah, sure.
2: But when, I, when I first heard about, about that, I was like, oh no, is this going to get into something that's a little bit too uh, sort of like moogly Mother Earth? Like, yeah, 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 no, no, it's not. No, but that's
1: a really important story here. So, so let's tell the story of the the Gaia hypothesis because it's an important part of if we want to understand where we are at now scientifically and this link between. Planets and aliens. We're gonna, we haven't gotten to the aliens right. yet, but we will, <laughs> yeah, folks. Don't worry; the aliens are coming. <laughs> um, so uh, we have to go. We first need to sort of cover the importance of of what the Gaia hypothesis was about and what it meant. So, you know, as I'm saying, the third revolution was this understanding of the Earth's whole of ev- uh, the whole history of the Earth, including its the coevolution of life and the 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 other systems. So. James Lovelock in the early 1960s is brought in to JPL to do uh, to help them do design possible experiments for life on Mars. right? And he's sitting there and he's listening to these you know, these people are basically saying, oh, you know, we'll have rovers and they'll dig stuff up. And, and he's like, you know, you guys are thinking that the life has to be like what's in the Mojave Desert. You have no idea what the life on Mars is. And so he says, you know, there's got to be a better way. And he first develops this idea of you know, you can use the state, the chemical state of the atmosphere as a a life detector, right? So on Earth, if all life disappeared, the atmosphere would lose its oxygen pretty quickly. I don't know exactly how quickly, but because it would all react away. Oxygen right. should not be in the atmosphere.
0: Because oxygen very quickly bonds with almost every other... Almost
1: everything else, right? right. It's, oxygen is a chemical hoe. So... Um, <laughs>
2: We're not slouching the oxygen, but, uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) right. They're not their thing. it's very promiscuous. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. So the, um, uh, so, you know, the fact that you can see oxygen in our atmosphere is a kind of life indicator. It says like, oh, and this is the way when we look for life on other planets with, you know, in the, in the next 10, 20, 30 years. What the main thing we're focusing on is exactly Lovelock's idea of looking for the, the biosignatures in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So, um, so first Lovelock realizes that. And then he realizes, like, wait, it's not just that life is a, deta- you know, is a, is a signature, I'm sorry, or, or the uh, oxygen is a signature of life. Actually, the level of oxygen uh, is controlled by life. Like, life actually has a way of, of maintaining. So this is an interesting problem. If the oxygen were twice as high the levels, in, you know that we have on in the Earth's atmosphere, everything would burn. One fire, you know, one lightning strike would start a fire that would never stop. Right. So you need the the, the oxygen levels to be just high enough to allow interesting biochemistry, but not too high that everything gets crisped. Right. Uh, so, so um, he came up with this idea that like, look, there's actually feedback. Life is part of the feedbacks. Life has this kind of just like our bodies. Can have homeostasis and can keep the temperature at ninety eight point six or ninety six point eight. I can never remember. Um, I always you know, remember
2: because of the boy band.
1: Ninety. <laughs> so wait, what is it? 98.6 yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so that that was the beginning of the Gaia hypothesis. Was that Earth is like a self-regulating? The, the whole Earth was kind of like a cell, self-regulating, um, and uh, uh, you know kept kept the planet life could keep the planet hospitable for life. And then Lynn Margellis, the great biologist, got involved with it as well. Um, and so people at first, there was a big reaction to the scientific community, a pushback, because the name, the Gaia hypothesis. Right. Gaia is the goddess of Earth. But he only came up with that because his neighbor was William Golding, who was oh. the guy who, yeah, right, who wrote Princess The Lord White? of the Flies. Oh, I'm sorry, Jesus. no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> William Goldman. <laughs> right. Sorry, different, yeah, yeah. Goldman Sachs. Wait, where are we? <laughs> yeah. um, no, William Golding Golding. Who was Yeah, who's a novelist. And one time, Lovelock was telling him about this. And he said, uh, you know, Lovelock wanted to call it like you know, Earth Systems Biology Feedback Mechanism. And Golding was like, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here's a better idea. So uh, the problem with the Gaia hypothesis was that, first of all, every New Age whack job in the world took this on and, you know, suddenly there were like Gaia churches right, and, right. you know, it became this whole super woo thing. But the scientists reacted because it, they felt it had the stench of teleology, right? That it somehow gave the Earth, it made the Earth seem like it had intention, right? Like, oh, the Earth wants life to
0: be... Which is also, I think, a problem that uh, biologists have with evolution when they try to explain the one of the reasons... One of the reasons they have trouble when talking to or arguing with people with creationist ideas is that a lot of the language of describing evolution suggests that there is some kind of intent, or, I mean, or, that,
2: or there's like a should, or that there's a better than something else. Yeah, look, as, opposed, as opposed, to just, opposed to being blind, something just exists or doesn't exist because of look, what happened. Yeah,
0: vi- Yeah, all of those like desi- all of those comments about design, or like this, this the, the bird has developed a beak that is this shape so as to enable to. Right. Sugge- sounds, suggest suggest, uh, yeah. like there is some kind of conscious decision rather right. than just no, this is minute changes, and each each tiny progression of them made it easier for the right. bird to get this food and therefore was more likely to survive and The same goes with the earth or all right. planets in terms of it 's blind evolution
1: right, right. evolution doesn 't have an intent, but so what happened was you know the uh, Lovelock and margellis margelis was amazing, she was like a very tough tough scientist, and so she basically just blew everybody out of the water and showed that no, that's not what we're saying, and it is still blind evolution, but these feedbacks still operate. Um, and so what eventually what happened was is that people gave up the idea, the name Gaia Hypothesis, but it became, the recognition that the biosphere was a major player uh, in, in the Earth's evolution, that stuck. And so it morphed into what's called Earth System Science, which is this recognition that there's the hydrosphere, the oceans, the cryosphere, the ice the atmosphere the um, lithosphere the dirt and the biosphere and they're all you know every planet is a coupled you know if it's got a biosphere but planets are, are these strongly coupled uh, uh, co-evolving systems of those so um, this leads us now to you know so how did I get here why am I talking about all this is that it's those three revolutions with the understanding that came from all that when you look now at what, what what's happening with us with climate change when you take those three into uh, account the story changes. So go. Look, let's talk more about this. <laughs> so let's f- get into this. Let's get into this. So the first thing is, you know, climate denial, often one of the things you'll hear is like, oh, the models suck, Those mod- they're just models, you know, we don't know anything, we don't really know enough.
0: Which, again, is uh, jumping back a few sentences ago, is another problem that science has in that the language of science is very specific but many of the words that scientists use have common english right versions. Like theory. yeah theory <laughs> Rab- model theory, gravity cool. vibration energy all of these words have sort of wor- have Usages that are much broader, right? Or either much broader or more specific in common English, right? right?
1: Right, and there's a great uh, there was a great uh, this American life where you know they they the whole thing was about like they called it family physics and they kept using all these names from physics, like the mediocre the mediocrity principle. And you know, and yeah. Ira Glass was great. He's like, you know, he starts off the show by saying this is what we're doing, and he says, you know, a lot of physicists get angry at us for like you know, for doing this, for using these terms, and he's like. Tough shit, you know. <laughs> yeah. Because if you are going to come up with a name, the mediocrity principle. Don't expect that we're not uh, going <laughs> to use that, right? Or a black hole, or a you know right. whatever. But the the, such-
0: the problem always comes when like when people jump from one world to the other right. with their with their conversation. Right. I remember having a conversation with someone a while ago. I can't even remember what it was he was attempting to prove or explain. I think ghosts were somehow involved, but it was <laughs> right. it was it started with like. I, I, all right, yeah, well, everything has mass, blah, blah. blah yeah, he goes, uh, yeah. And then Einstein says, equals MC squared. For, all right, hang on, stop uh, now. Yeah, yeah. Cause, yeah. Cause, yeah. Like, you can, talk, you can talk about energy in, uh, in the that sense works. of like... Energy is the... the, the yeah, people, <laughs> you can oh, absolutely
2: talk about like... there's has way too many meanings to too many yeah. people. Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Go like, oh, the energy of a room, or he had loads of energy, and that's great. Right. Is it Red Bull, or is it you potential or kinetic? What, what you can't do here. is put that general broad meaning of the word energy into physics equations because that energy is very specific and narrowed to... Narrowly right, defined, right?
1: I have to. I was at a uh, this event a while ago. It was a really wonderful meeting about uh, Buddhism and science. And a woman, you know, came up to me afterwards, and she's like, "You know, what about dark energy? Isn't that a way to explain consciousness?" And you know, no, I, and, but, no but she was she was oh, earnest, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, she wasn't she sorry. wasn't tra- she wasn't because fr- God knows there are definitely people who are like fruity tooty. But I had to like I felt really bad. I had to be like, "Well, you know, dark energy has a very specific meaning in physics. We, you know, we got to be able to turn it into a mathematical." Yeah. It, it unfortunately
0: has a quite poetic sounding name. Yeah. Right,
1: right. Well, at any, I mean, the thing about dark matter and dark energy, right? People just run with that all over the place. It's an amazingly poetic name. And yeah, a lot of wackadoodle stuff happens with because of that.
0: Well, it's the same
2: as like when someone decided to call the square root of negative one an, an imaginary number. It's like, oh, why did we say that? Now <laughs> right. we're opening the door to all kinds of imaginary things because that word's now part of math. Yeah. So
0: that's like, you know, if you were counting ghosts. Right, oh, exactly. Yeah, right. Fawns, how many? But uh... you know,
1: it is kind of an imaginary number, right? First they tell you, okay, like, every. Every square, you know, you take yeah. the number and multiply it itself. And here are the rules for multiplying negative numbers and positive numbers. And then here's this thing that's the square root whose number is, whose square root is is negative. You're like, wait, you just told me you can't do that. It's like, yeah, yeah. All right, we changed it. All right, <laughs> no, it's complex. It's complicated. Like, <laughs> yeah, relationships. That sort of <laughs> is, square root of negative yeah. one is, right. Yeah. yeah. So all right, we, all right, we got away. We, <laughs> Where were we? Where were uh, we on the on the on the gravy train? Oh, oh, oh. so arguing with people about or, or was it about that? Yeah, about uh, you know, right. So there's there's a path I'm going to take, and I'm going to start sort of in the solar system and with the um uh, the Earth, you know, the uh, the bodies in the solar system and the, the Earth. And I'm that. This is my. I'm going to do my first pushback with with you know uh, how how you get a different view of climate, and then we'll get to the aliens, right? We're going to you know we have to we're going to hold the aliens back for a while. So they were saying the deniers are, are push. They say the bad models. Right? They're, They're like dead. models are stupid. You don't really understand. It's like look, we have we have climate models that can predict the weather on Mars. Okay, you know, like there there are weather stations on yeah. Mars right now. I wasn't I, tell you that. I wasn't
0: aware until your book that there is a Mars weather app. Yeah. Right. Speaking yeah. of Dude. which, you guys
2: know a few hours ago we might have lost Curiosity forever. This what? Hot off the presses. Yeah, a, a, oh. a storm on Mars might have no! permanently. We're taping this on Wednesday afternoon, and
1: I just saw. Uh, right, because that storm, you could sit, have those amazing pictures of the sun just blotting out because of the storm. But, but I thought they were going to put it into like safe mode or something. And six hours ago, they put it, they powered it down.
2: Um, but then, oh. Oh, they're opt- okay, they're optimistic they can okay it can survive Good. this storm. Oof. But I saw some other headlines today saying it might be the end of curiosity. Hopefully not.
1: All right, well, so let's, let's, exactly this. This is a very beautiful uh, segue you made there, right? So, um, nuclear winter, right? So nuclear winter was a very important moment in U.S. political history. And it was when Carl Sagan and a bunch of other researchers Using a climate model showed that even a small nuclear exchange would light enough fires that you get so much soot in the atmosphere that you know, uh, agriculture would be messed up. Right? And this actually, if you look at the history of nuclear disarmament in the uh, in 1980s, even though the Reagan administration the Russians never admitted it, this, they recognized the truth of those models. Here's the amazing thing. Those models are based on Martian climate. Because Mars has dust storms, right? And so, you know, after studying Mars and seeing Mars's dust storms, they were able to take the physics that they were correctly applying on Mars and bring it over to the Earth—the the physics of dust particulates in the the atmosphere and how it scatters light—and that's how they knew that these nuclear winter models were were right. So, you know, the idea that oh, you know, we don't know anything about climate—we know shitloads about climate because we've got all these planets to you know that we've we verified. We verified the, the climate physics on other planets. So, of course, we understand what's going
0: on. And we can also use those as control. Presumably, we can use other planets that don't have people on them as controls. That's exactly it. That's exactly it, right. So, here are you know the complexity of life and everything. Well, here's much simpler systems.
1: And you always want to start with a simpler system to understand something. That, you know, the, the basics. So, for example, um, Mars has Hadley cells. So, you know, the, 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 the trade winds, right, in, on Earth are basically these large-scale atmospheric currents um that occur because the Earth is rotating. Mars has them too. Mars has jet streams. Every planet that's rotating and has an atmosphere has. So uh, it's easier to fly in one direction than the other on Mars. Um, even on Mars, it's right. Quicker. Yeah. Well, you know, the problem with Mars' atmosphere is it's so light. That was like the one thing that was super wrong about the Martian, right? Is that he gets knocked he over. Off the... Yeah, um well that yeah, right. Or that, also the, with the, yeah, yeah. the dust storm. It starts off with that dust storm and they're like, you know, trying to walk through it. And in fact, you could have a five hundred mile an hour dust storm on Mars and you would just be standing up straight because there's so little atmosphere. Oh. There. Yeah, so that was actually... That came as a... That, I didn't know but that. But still things
2: beginning. that... Were, so does that also mean... Like, how does dust get picked up if it's so thin that it... Is, it's well, because
1: dust, dust, c- so, dust is so tiny, it's easy for it to get scooped up by the wind. But like a a plate... You know, wouldn't something big wouldn't something big wouldn't get picked, picked up, up by that thin atmosphere? Right.
0: It's because even though it's moving so fast, it has so, so little, little momentum because it's so light. Right. Right. Exactly.
1: So you know, that's the first. So even before we can get to Also non-dense I mean, rather before we get to aliens, we can already see that like by taking an astrobiological perspective, we we get a very different story about climate change. That look, you know, climate. We understand climate in ways that that you know go literally are extraterrestrial. <laughs> um, the other thing, just looking at the Earth's history. You know, without going to even thinking about aliens yet is that we, as we talked about we 've seen from earth 's history that the planet um, has life has changed the planet many times, so the idea that oh it 's how could you know human beings be having this effect. You know, on a certain level, what else did you expect? How could it not? Right? right, yeah. So that's, I mean, this is one of the most important transitions, I think, that you get when you take the astrobiological perspective. We think that the political debate should be about, did we change the climate or didn't we, right? You know, for the uh, the vast majority of scientists, of course, know that it's been changed, but um, you know, the public debate seems to be like, oh, you know, did we change or didn't? When you take the astrobiological perspective, what you realize is like, duh, what did you expect? Yeah. You know, we are bacteria
0: now- changed the climate.
1: Exactly. And we are, you know, the, our civilization now consumes a sizable fraction of the biosphere's total power, con- you know, power output, right? You know what did you, you you could have landed as I you know say in the book you could have landed in Rome if you were an alien and if you knew what we know now if you'd landed in Rome you would have looked around and been like you guys are going to trigger climate change in about a thousand years or so right it's it's a predictable yeah. consequence in some way so you know these uh, debates we get into the the stuff about the models the the, uh, the unwillingness to um, accept that we changed the, the that we could have changed the climate it now from the astrobiological perspective those things just go away they don't even make sense anymore as a you know is a talking point right and it's it's crazy to me to ask
2: somebody who doesn't believe it's happened yet do you think it will eventually like they how could they all not say well of course if we keep on this path of course eventually it will. Even if they don't believe it has now, how could right. they think we've, we would suddenly yeah. plateau with yeah. how we've? Yeah, there's no impact. There's like, never there's any never, impact. Yeah, what you're
1: saying is, you know, and that, that's why the history of the Earth gives lie to the idea that that life can't change the, uh, you know, the, um, the the climate. And so, you know, then it's also, you know, the, the dumbest thing. That the dumbest true thing That the climate denials will say Is uh, you know the, earth, the climate's changing all the time man <laughs> Hey man You know the climate's changing all the time And you know If somebody asks me that And they're interested in the answer You know if like You know Like you know If they're somebody They don't know geoscience And so they're just like Hey I've heard the climate's changing all the time
0: Great Let's have a conversation I'll tell you what I know You know Because actually we know the answer <laughs> well, Let's talk that. about that Because because that is the argument That the earth Even before humans existed Went through periods of ice age And periods of heat Of extreme warming
1: Right. So, you know, if that's what I mean. So for, you know, for, for uh, you know, Joe Sixpack or whatever, Joe Whiskey Pack, Joe, whatever you're drinking, you know, you know, that's a rash. That's a really good question. That's a question they should have. Right. But, you know, what a climate denialist doesn't give a shit about the answer. Right. Right. That question. <laughs> that just, question is a good one. And it has an answer because we've been studying the earth now in great detail. So there's an answer. To, Would you like to know what this? No, I don't really want to know. I just want to keep saying this over and over again. You know, and the answer is, is that, you yeah, know, climate changes. But there's also long periods of stability. You know, what's the If you're saying it's changing, what's the time scale for the change? So Earth's history, we have been in the Holocene since the, since the last ice age um the, the epoch that we now call the Holocene started, which has been around for the last 10,000 years. and it's been very stable. The climate has been very, very stable. It's been you know, pretty warm and pretty moist. There's a lot of liquid water you know, as opposed to ice around and so that's the entire history of human civilization is the Holocene right you know the city the agriculture city building industry that is all the Holocene and now we're pushing the planet out of the Holocene right that's the thing we're now entering this Anthropocene as we were saying this new human dominated era and because we understand so much about how The interworking parts. You know how how we we know how to think like a planet. Now we can see that we are. You know that the planet is starting to roll away from the state that we found it in, Mm -hmm. right? And where it's going to roll is the open question. And and this is also the other great change is that coming to understand that the um, you know, we're not we're not some kind of evil bastards for what's going on, right? In terms of, you know, I I get in trouble when I say this, but people have to understand what I'm saying. Climate change is not our fault, or was not our fault, right? We had built a civil... We've been building civilizations for 10,000 years. We've always been using whatever energy source was around, right? Right. And so when we discovered fossil fuels, it wasn't like we were like, now I will destroy the planet with this brown goo. It was like... This shit's awesome. Release
0: the carbon. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Release the creaking.
1: Right. Um, so, you know, it's like this stuff was great. You could heat your home. You could build an internal combustion engine. You could make plastic out of it. You know, so it wasn't – we we triggered it as an accident, just like the blue-green algae, tr- you know, triggered the oxygen uh, revolution as an accident, and and you know, but if we don't do something about it, you know, now that we know, it will be our fault because you know it'll be our folly because you know we we could have we taken have the, the information
2: next now to know that it's right,
1: right. So anybody, you know, so there there you know there are people who are you know through their own stupidity are keeping us from being able to deal with what we now know.
2: Maybe that's part of the. Because I'm always trying to figure out the politics of climate denial, and I got the part of it that is, I think a lot of people just hate the fact that they think if they admit it's happening, then we're going to the government's going to restrict business and we're going to lose well, to other countries uh, a lot,
0: i think is what some people uh, and a lot of the a lot of the politics comes down to not full denial but more of a cost benefit analysis where they they will claim that to make these changes that these scientists are suggesting would be so have such a negative effect on the country and on our way of life and our existence, that it would outweigh any potential gain from slowing the warming of the earth.
1: Yeah, but that, I mean, there's lots of, you know, I mean, you know, last year's multiple billion dollar hurricane damage gives lie to that. You know, every time you got to rebuild your infrastructure. But here's the thing, so as I like to point out, um, I did this thing for NPR one time in Rochester where I was, you know, there's a place in Rochester I can go where there's the Erie Canal, You know, and then across over the Erie Canal, there's a train bridge and that line was put in in like the 1890s, the original train line. And then there's a highway and then there's the airport. Right. Four different infrastructures that were all built in the last hundred and fifty or so years. One of which almost two of which that were abandoned. Right. Climate change, that whole idea of like, oh, it's going to be so hard. We have been cycling through, you know, transportation and, you know, energy infrastructures. How many times over the, you know, in 1890, there were no gas stations, right? By 1920, (laughs) there's gas stations everywhere. So this idea that it's somehow going to restrict business or inhibit business, as I like to say, you know, climate change shows us how awesome we are, right? We changed the whole atmosphere (laughs) of a goddamn planet. Not bad for a bunch of hairy apes, right? Climate change is not... You know, dealing with climate change is not to be anti-business or anti-human or anti... In fact, it actually demonstrates, and this gets us now to the aliens, that we have come to a point in our maturity as a species where we have power. We have, you know, we have... We are now elevated to the status of being like, oh, you know, almost an adult on a planetary scale Uh. and, you know now we get to the aliens, we're not the first time this has happened, right? You can, you can make the argument pretty strongly that, you know, it doesn't mean anybody's around now, sure as hell doesn't mean there's any UFOs, but given all those planets that we know about, you can now, and this is a paper we wrote in uh, a few years ago, you can now show what the, prob- well, how bad the odds have to be, what do the odds have to be for, you know, life and our intelligence forming on a planet for us to be the only time it's ever happened.
0: Right, so right? you talk about, and we've, we've brought up the Drake equation before on this show, but you... You really break it down and go into detail on each element of this. So for, to remind listeners, or if people who don't know, the Drake Equation... Yeah, sure. Is- let's, run down the, let's
1: run down the Drake Equation. Um, the Drake Equation was, uh, and I tell the story, the history of it. The Drake Equation is this equation for... the what, what the equation tells you is the number of intelligent species in the galaxy that you can communicate with right now right so n that's the you know the the, the number of intelligent uh, or civilizations in the galaxy right now and it depends on uh, uh seven factors uh, and each factor is sort of it's a it's a subproblem right you know it's a right. sub small a smaller thing to argue about first one is the number of stars in the galaxy that makes sense right the second one is the fraction of those stars that have planets
0: so that one is one that has that element that factor of this drake equation has in the past 20 years changed remarkably
1: remarkably when drake wrote the equation this was you know the important thing to understand about the sea change that we're going through in thinking about climate change and aliens and our role in the biosphere is that you know it all began almost within a few years uh, of each uh, these events uh, of each other in the early 60s so 1961 drake writes down the drake equation at this m- first meeting on 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 aliens, basically. Um, 1962, we get the first uh, space uh, interplanetary probe to Venus, which discovers the greenhouse effect, right? Or the the Venusian greenhouse effect. 1965, um, uh, President Johnson gives a speech about about CO2 and climate change. 1965. Oh, shit. Yeah. (laughs) To Congress, where he's like, CO2 is going to be a problem. We need to do something about it which just gives the total lie to people like, you know, climate change is a right. hoax. They just brought it up. It's like, you you know, 50 years ago, the president of the United States was like, this is a And problem. this was also the
0: beginnings of NASA being involved in tracking climate and weather. And- exactly, right. They knew that we wanted to study Earth. That
1: was part of it. So, you know, there was, a, as I like to say, there was a cultural jigsaw puzzle that was assembling itself then about, about our place in the universe, you know, in terms of civilizations, about how planets work, exploring other planets in the solar system, and then about how Earth works and that they, you know. So we were, and now 50 years later, that, that, that jigsaw puzzle is really starting. You know, that's why I wrote this book. It really, the pieces are in place. We're ready to go. So, getting back to the Drake equation. Um, so, the, the third term is also one that has had radical uh, change is, um, the third term is the uh, number of planets in the habitable zone, right? Right. So, uh, so, the first three terms number of stars, fraction of stars with planets, number of planets in the habitable zone they're all about astronomy. Right. The next three terms are kind of about. But that's
0: basically saying you need a planet that would be habitable, so it's just. All right. Right. How many of those theoretically are? are how many stars are there? What proportion of them have planets, and what proportion of those planets are within a habitable region? Right.
1: Right. So then, the next three terms are all going to be sort of a, a about biology or by, you know linked to biology. Um, the the uh, next term is the fraction of of planets in the habitable zone that have life that form life. Next one is the fraction of those planets with life that the life goes on to become intelligent. The next one, next term, is the fraction of the intelligent life that be, develops. Technological civilizations. And then the last term is what I like to call the final factor. Bum, bum, <laughs> bum, bum. It's the average lifetime of a civilization. How long do they last, right? And that term ends up being directly important. To us right because how long does anybody make it
0: you know how long can a civilization right. maintain itself and the best estimate of that generally that we have is how long have we survived
1: right which is to right now we've been around for maybe 150 years as a as a technological civilization maybe even less if you really think of radio if we're if we're interested in radio communication it's only been as
2: know, in a, as in someone else in a different galaxy might have the chance of detecting that we exist yeah as, as right.
0: a, as so right. what's what's yeah. the time frame between. Us developing radio technology And therefore be able to broadcast Intelligent signals And us dying out as a species
1: (laughs) Right Whatever (laughs) reason That's exactly Well okay so And you just said But there's the key thing Whatever reason What I'm going to Well so uh, What I'm going to eventually argue here Is that Climate change Is kind of inevitable Right? And so climate change may be one of these things that every civilization has to have, it has to face. And it's an existential crisis, and that some civilizations make it through and some don't. But it is generic we should have expected it. But let's go back. Is,
2: has this conversation happened on a podcast in other exoplanets before? <laughs> <That's right.
1: laughs> well, I think in some sense, everybody, you know, and that's what I'm trying to say is that, you know, this idea of being a cosmic teenager, right? As you, as civilizations mature, you know, they, they, they you know, develop their capacities and at some point they trigger climate change because they've built world-girdling civilizations and at some point, you know, they have to sort of sit themselves down. Like, you know, when your yeah. parents sat you down and said, well, son. So
0: in cosmic teenager terms, what's, the time frame between developing the skateboard and developing the crash helmet.
1: (laughs) Right, right, right. I I tend to think in cars, right, because when I gave my kids the car keys, I was like, oh my God, I'm an atheist, but all of a sudden now I'm very religious. (laughs) So, uh, but let's go back, let's keep, you know, before we sort of dive too far into this, let's just go back to this idea of like how many aliens are there? How many species have there been, right? So, um... Uh, So we have all those terms in the Drake equation, and what Woody Sullivan and I were able to do is we realized we had all this data from Kepler, right? What the Kepler data showed us, those first three astronomical terms were now nailed down. You know, when Drake came up with the equation, he only had one. They knew how many stars there were. But with the the Kepler data, now we had this enormous increase. Now two of those terms have been nailed down. It's got to be good for something. So if we... If you can, you know, with science it's always about asking the right question, right? What question can my data answer? We couldn't answer how many are around now because that involves like the the, the uh, final factor we don't know what that is. Um, so uh, you know, what we could do is we could reformulate it in ways we could ask a very specific question, which is cuz you know, there's so many probabilities in there, right? The probability of life on each on a planet, but we could group everything together and we could come up with a limit on the probability that answered this question how unlikely do civilizations have to be you know, to, in terms of their formation for us to be the only time it's ever happened right so you know we don't know what all those individual terms is nature and it's processes of evolution you know will determine what all of these uh, terms for life and civilization and uh, intelligence will be we don't know those but Can we at least put a limit on all of them together, right? You know, the the whole shebang, all the way up to, and we found we could put a limit, right? We could, you know, we could say that, and that limit was we called it the pessimism line, right? Because anything lower than that, we are totally alone. Anything above that, it's happened before. Doesn't mean anybody's around now, but it's happened before. So there, we were able to calculate what that line was, and it turns out to be one in ten billion trillion
2: are the right. chances of this never having happened before.
1: As, lo- as, long as, at one in ten, as long as the probability per planet, I give you a planet and you're like, well, what's the probability that you're going to get a civilization on that? As long as that probability is bigger than one in 10 billion trillion, we're not the first, right? If it's one in 10 billion trillion or lower, yep, this is it. They're the only time it's ever happened. It couldn't have because the number's are too vast. Because yeah. right, yeah. you, right.
0: you also start off talking about, look, uh, the different stages in developing of human life at which we could have fucked up.
1: right 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 that there you know there's that right that's the idea of the um of the 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 great uh filter Right. right where the um but before cuz but sorry i'm jumping ahead a bit yeah yeah that's not true cuz that, that that takes us onto another uh, uh, question but here i just want to emphasize so so that number is so psychotically small what that tells you is that unless nature is really biased against it right uh. so that somehow it's nature has tuned all the dials so the probability per planet of getting a civilization is 1 in 10 billion trillion you know this has happened before as long as nature's not that psychotically against it this has happened before and In fact, it's happened a lot, you know, most likely. So if you go back and you look at the history of, uh, you know, people who are pessimists about other civilization, what you find is... If you, you know, when you try and extract a number from them it is way bigger than what we found right so even people who would say that they were pessimists you know like um, a very famous one was a guy who debated um, uh, Ernst Mayer who debated Sagan and his number turns out to be like 10 to the minus 15 our number is 10 to the minus 22 so if and he was a pessimist <laughs> right. you know he thought he was a pessimist but in fact in his universe there have been I think it's like 10 million civilizations over
0: cosmic history right so it's like you know who have reached the point of of, oh, we of, now know this because. Yes, exactly. they come to our. our, our, our because point. when he gave that figure of 10 to the minus 15, or 10 to the 15, that was before any of those people knew just how many planets there were. Yeah,
1: no, it's not even that. He was like, he just thought, you know, he was just trying to estimate,
0: like, what he knew about biology, you know? Right. Based on so he was really looking at. But, these. but you say that given that number, we now know how many possible planets there yes. are based on how many. That's what
1: it is, right? That's what it is, and so that so it turns because he
0: gave that number when we thought there were maybe like ten possible planets, right. and now we know there are millions upon millions exactly. of possible. Planets. There's so
1: many planets that you just you know you just the nature you, you you've run so many experiments that even if you think developing a civilization is really hard, you still have so many planets around that you still end how up with know? millions so it, or billions yeah. or trillions. so in
0: probabilistic terms, it's almost like. You're calculating the number of, like, uh, the chance of winning the lottery jackpot, but now we know because of how many planet, because of Kepler, that we're effectively buying, like, a trillion lottery that's tickets. That's really what it is.
1: Right. Your odd, the odds of winning any ticket is one in a million, but I just bought a trillion tickets, so of course I'm going to win, you know, a hundred million times or something. So that's, right. really, that's a nice way of putting it. Um, so, you know, why is that important? Because what it does for us now is it says, like, look... We're not the first time this has happened. And every one of those civilizations has a history. Every one of those has a trajectory. Um, you know, they will have born and they will have gone through whatever. And some of them will have died and some of them won't. And what we can do then with that is we can begin thinking, like, what is the average trajectory? What is, you know, does anybody make it through climate change? And we can start doing science, you know, because you know, we can do, run models. We can develop models for this whole process. But the most important thing, I think, you know, again, thinking about how we think about climate change is to understand that were not the first. You know, we're not the first, and we're not the only. And I think one of the problems, and we're not bad guys, like you said. Well, this exactly, is the inevitable result we have to deal with. Right, and... right. If you build a civilization, you're going to have climate change. So it's this is this is a a predictable planetary transition. This is you know the end of our cosmic teenagehood, and and the end of your teenagehood doesn't have to mean the end of your life. It could mean the end of your life if you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, not to, you know, you know, like if you don't have the maturity or the the ability to marshal your own forces, and that's where we're at now. And when you think of it that. That way, everything about, for me, everything about climate change changes, right? We're not yeah. the, you know, like, you know, so many times, I, so I start the book with this image of, you know, a bunch of kids in therapy, in group therapy, uh-huh. because, you know, when you're a teenager, you kind of think like, oh my God, nobody understands me, you know, man, I'm all alone, and, you know, you're, you're just locked into your own world, and then Once you start talking to other people, you realize, like, oh, other people are experiencing what I'm experiencing, too. And, you know, because we don't think we have anybody to talk to, so to speak, uh, we're sort of locked in. And it's confusing. So climate change is confusing to us. And the only story we have about it is that we suck, right? right? And we don't understand, like, no, everybody goes through this. And, you know, the smart ones are able to make it through. Which ones do you want to be? Which also kind of, like,
2: is the second thing I was going to say about the political reason I didn't think of until today That this would be helpful because I also think people who are deniers might hate the sort of liberal bent of the self flagellation of like, oh, we've done all these awful things. Like, we're not saying it's there was no intent to begin with, it just here we are, let's deal with it. Like, we're not saying humans have to now like do all this Mm -hmm. off. Like, you take responsibility, but not say that we're inherently bad or something,
1: right? No, that's exactly. I mean, unfortunately, you know, I'm completely an environmentalist, but I think so much often over the environmental movement is this sort of like guilt thing you know right. human beings suck we're a plague we're a virus look how horrible we are it's like no we're not and not only that in fact we are what the biosphere is doing right now a city is no different from a forest from the biosphere's perspective you can't say like oh my god there's pristine nature and it's so great and cities suck it's like what are you talking about <laughs> we, the, the cities are the result of the biosphere right you know as i like to point out if if human beings settle mars It's not really going to be us doing it. It's going to be the biosphere doing it. We're the agent for the biosphere to reach out and settle Mars. And you'll even. That you know, if we're dry, we are. We're driving a mass extinction, and it's you know, it's not like we should be, um, uh, you know, uncompassionate for what's happening. But you know, there's one way of looking at it that this the mass extinction we drive is just there's going to be niches for the next species. we you know, because of the mass extinction, we're not going to survive because we're <laughs> idiots because we need the biodiversity. But on the other hand, from the biosphere's perspective, it's you know, it's just going to use the climate states that we're, the new climate state we drive to create to do, a new exactly a new biosphere. So the real question is not, and I, you know, this is I had a New York Times op-ed uh, today um, where I was saying, you know, the question is not saving the earth. So many times you hear that, like, oh man, we got to save the earth, we got to save life. It's like, dude, you know, our job is not to save the earth. It's not to piss it off, right? <laughs> right. You know planets are animate powers they literally channel huge amounts of cosmic energy <laughs> oh, right no. yeah starlight right i mean That's you know. true, yeah. and they turn it they they use it for innovation planets take sunlight and do interesting shit with it right and these those the powers that are available to a planet are tremendous they dwarf anything we can do and you know the the hurricanes i that those images of houston of what is it i know i-235 of houston you know this highway that has now turned into a raging river you want to know what the biosphere can do that's what the biosphere can do
0: right right at the end of the book we're jumping way ahead but you talk about is it pronounced kardashev scale the kardashev scale yeah right right that's an interesting which is about how much of the power of the Either the star or the galaxy or whatever we can harness, right? So the civilization scale, can harness,
1: yeah. So the Kardashev scale is an interest. It's like the Drake equation. It was something that came up. People came up with in you know uh, Kardashev in nineteen early nineteen sixties. And Kardashev uh, he was really interested in detection, but he came up with this idea that civilizations will naturally pass through three stages. First stage is when you can harness all the energy that falls on your planet, which is pretty much sunlight, right? That's where most of the energy is. So you can harness all the all of the sunlight, maybe through solar panels or something. Uh, a
0: type. Well, even to, fossil fuels is effectively harnessing sunlight. Yeah, it's
1: fossil. Just... It's fossil sunlight, right? I mean, it's you know stored sunlight. It, right. Yeah. So um, uh, the Kardashev. The, the type two was where you can harness the entire energy output of your star so that's where the Dyson sphere comes up you know, yeah. idea that like you can encase the entire solar system in a giant sphere with solar panels on it and you'll harvest all that energy and do you know cool alien stuff and make yourself invisible to other people looking for you yeah well except it should glow in the infrared people have actually oh, okay. done people have done searches this is an active thing now to try and look for the infrared signature of
0: Dyson spheres right that may be that may be a good way of finding is this you know, like something that SETI is involved in. Is that one of their methods?
1: Yeah, yeah. So Jason Wright and others have done some searches looking for the signatures, the infrared signatures of things that might be, you know.
0: Minor detour, but is the work of SETI in any way being slowed by the fact that all the computers that are previously being used for mass computing are now trying to mine Bitcoins?
1: You know, it may be for like SETI at home. Yeah, that's possible. Or that are video games. Yeah, right. Hey man, I'd love to find aliens, but really I got to get, I got (laughs) to level up to get that, that sniper rifle. Um, the uh, one thing that's important with people in talking about SETI is for people to understand that, you know, there's really, we haven't done much SETI, right? The idea that the stars are silent, that, you know, my God, we've looked and we've looked and we haven't found anything. That is bullshit, right? You know, as, as Jill Tarter says, um, you know, if, if, the, if the area we're looking, you know, if we're looking for aliens and that is like an ocean, we've looked at a thimble. You know, people, there's never been any money for SETI. So people just have sort of been grabbing a little bit of time here. There's the Allen telescope, you know, but it's, there's never been a large scale, coherent, comprehensive SETI search. So it's like we have just begun to look so the idea that somehow that you know the stars are silent and we don't have any evidence for uh that there is there's evidence for uh yeah we don't have any evidence but we haven't really looked so that's really the important thing
2: are you optimistic about currently existing or i guess existing long enough ago that we're going to see signs of it life or just the fact that at some point it has existed
1: i you know i'm you know what but what my calculation shows is that you know unless nature is perversely
0: against it It has existed Doesn't say Because you know Everything depends On the final factor So again yeah That that, Because I was a bit Confused at first By that number You and your colleague Calculated But just to go back To that lottery ticket Analogy You basically looked At the number of planet You basically calculated How difficult Would this lottery Have to be Right for it to still be impossible to win, given the number of tickets that we have, that's exact. That's a good way of putting it. So, so like
1: what we've shown is that's why I keep referring to this idea that what we've shown is that nature would really have to be kind of biased against it, like really perversely absurdly bi- biased, absurdly biased against civilizations. And you know, so so what that means is it's up to the pessimists now. You know, right? It's, you're, 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 but again. Because everything depends on the final factor, it doesn't mean anybody's around now. There could have been trillions, uh, literally. There could have been trillions of civilizations, you know. But if they all lasted two hundred years, there's nobody around, right? Because like right? so
0: far, we're we're not even up to two centuries yeah. worth of broadcasting exactly. radio waves, right. which is a speck in the history right, of our planet, right? right.
1: And so, you know, this is the re- this is where climate change becomes so interesting because climate change, as uh, Pierre Humbert has said, he's a cl- good, uh, really excellent climate scientist. He said, you know, climate change is like our final exam. You know, it's climate because because climate change is going to be generic. If you the second law of thermodynamics tells you if you build a civilization that is sucking in huge amounts of energy, you're going to feed back on your planet. Right. That, you know, whether you're a peace loving race or a war loving race, you're going to trigger climate change. So nuclear war, you can imagine that some species would be like, I'm not building those things. What are you, an idiot? Right. So the idea that every civilization has to go through like, you know, nuclear, you know, avoid nuclear war. That depends on your evolutionary, you know, history, your evolutionary psychological history. What kind of behaviors did you inherit? But climate change, it doesn't matter what kind of, you know, what kind of psychology you have, you're going to trigger climate change because you built a civilization. They come together.
0: Mm-hmm. That that makes sense. You, you do talk about sort of three different Drake equation pessimists in uh, the book. Uh, you mean the three that i mentioned yeah, yeah the four yeah right so there's a mac mac and yokie Yoki? right
1: right so ernst mayer was the one who you know uh, you're by, you he you, you can find if you look at his numbers that you get the number you know that you get the 10 to the minus 15 um Brandon Carter had this brilliant argument. Uh, He was a pessimist, but he had this really brilliant argument. It's the only one that really can be turned into probability distributions that you can really sort of extract hard numbers out of. But he did it all out of this one observation. And he said, look, the Earth has been around, has been habitable uh, since, you know, it's been habitable for 4.5 billion years. We maybe have another half billion to a billion years of habitability. So, you know, long before the sun turns into a red giant and, you know, uh, it dies, the Earth, because the the sun is continually heating up, the Earth will be out of the habitable zone. So we
0: only have maybe a half billion to a billion. So so that bit, even then, was a surprise. The fact that we sort of human life or life started to exist of nine tenths of the way through the possible habitable existence That's of Earth. what he
1: used just this is like the kind of super brilliant argument he used just that one fact the one fact that life or that intelligence civilization didn't show up until pretty much the end of earth's habitability period to develop this whole thing that he called the hard step model you know, that there must be it must have there must have been a bunch of really hard steps that you had to get through in order for develop civilization because it happened so late. If it was easy, what happened earlier? Right. Right. Um, and so uh, and so he did this calculation where he used that and he got the number 10 to the minus 20 and in that you know which is and so in that he you know calculates 10 to the minus 20 which is like what uh, uh, one in a billion trillion or so um, and he uh, says in the paper this number is more than sufficient to show that we are the only civilization in cosmic history but in fact it's a hundred times larger than the pessimism line so this guy who thinks he's an absolute pessimist actually he gets a universe that has had a hundred civilizations in it you know
0: right yeah so
1: i was like "Eh."
0: (laughs) for that that even still, that's right at the limit
1: of your right right. and then herbert yoki yoki did this calculation where he just like looked at just the evolution the formation of life out of you know random combinations of uh, uh of atoms you know what would you need how many how many how long would it take before just random collection collisions would produce a dna atom and he gets there like you know Uh, 10 to the minus 160 Um, so he is like way below our pessimism line but nobody believes that's how DNA formed now there's the whole RNA world idea you know we have we have ways of forming life where that are much faster, you know, that that don't take that, that don't have those kind of insane... They require
0: far fewer rolls of dice.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. So with you know, DNA to try and assemble a DNA out of just spare parts is hard. But you know, RNA with the idea of RNA world is you can take because really what you need to get life is that you need a self replicating molecule. Right? That's the most important thing. And so with RNA, which is also self replicating, you can start with small strands of RNA that only have, you know, a a a, a few, you know, or hundred and forty base pairs um, uh, and those, you can use those to get uh, to start the process and let them link together to eventually lead up to something and that is more an complex.
0: exponentially more likely process.
1: Exponentially more likely. Like, yeah, literally, you just gain so many factors and so much more speed out of that. So, so Yoki's thing is like, you know, it's hard to support that at all. So, you know, I mean, what you find is that even the people who were pessimists, turn out to be optimists from our thing. So it's, you know, again, it's possible that we're the only time it's ever happened, but it's super unlikely that we're the only civilization that's ever happened. And every civilization had a history, and I'm going to, you know, the research we're doing is really sort of shown that every civilization, you know, is is probably, or at least many of them, are going to trigger climate change. Climate change and anthropocenes are a generic consequence of a a biosphere evolving a um, technological civilization.
2: Do you anticipate seeing anything that would be hard proof besides the fact that these numbers work out in terms of exoplanet searches that we would see in our lifetimes, maybe the sign maybe even if they aren't alive now that, that it has happened that, <laughs> well
1: um, you know one of the most exciting things happening for me right now you know, at least, is techno signatures right so you know this is people have to understand that like you know this is not your grandfather's SETI anymore right I mean that that, that way of doing SETI where you like take a radio telescope and you point it at a star and you listen to see if anybody's beaming signals at you right. you know that's still there's Just a lot waiting to be for like there. prime number beeps yeah right exactly that's what I loved about the movie Arrival did you guys see Arrival I did see the, it uh, Amy Adams no, wait. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, I think it was Amy. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I see it. Yeah, and I love it that you know they you know they, they send in a linguist and a physicist, and the physicist is like, I'm, I'm gonna we're gonna communicate with prime numbers. And that shit just doesn't work at all, right? You know? It's like what? What are you talking about? And it has to you know, the linguist is the one who sort of figures out no language is much more subtle and much more symbolic in ways that math doesn't cover. So um but uh, you know uh, the, the point I was making was that um over the next thirty years, here's the amazing thing: over the next twenty or thirty years, we're going to have most likely real data about life on other planets. Right? I'm not sure what the data is going to tell us. It may tell us that there is not, but rather than just sort of sitting around and arguing with each other, we're going to actually have some numbers, some real data, and that's because of uh, the exoplanet revolution. We're going; we can already now characterize, take the first steps to characterize exoplanet atmospheres to tell what the atmospheres of these planets that are, you know, 20 light years away, what's in their atmospheres, you know? So there's that moment when when the planet is transiting the star, when it's passing in front of the star, between us and the star, when the light from the star passes through the atmosphere. And you can do, the spe- you can take the spectra of that light and you can see the fingerprint, the, the, sp- the light fingerprint of the, um... Uh, of the uh, the chemicals that are in the atmosphere. So, you know, we're going to be looking for biosignatures. We're going to look for oxygen and methane. We're going to be looking for things that should only be there because they're a biosphere. So so biosignatures are a big push, and people are doing all these models. And I'm just now with a couple of other people. We just put in a proposal to do technosignatures, right? Go on. Uh, so technosignatures would be, you know, things that are uh, unintentional indications of the presence of an intelligent civilization, so for example, Avi Loeb and um, uh, Manaz Lingam had did this paper where they showed that if you know your planet was covered had a fair coverage of uh, of uh, solar cells, the reflected light would show an edge due to the silicon. Right, the the reflected light would actually have an imprint of the fact that there was a lot of silicon lying on the ground. Um, People have even proposed that you might be able to see city lights. Right, that when the planet, you know, when that that as you watch the planet transit and you watch it move around, you might be able to see the the city lights. So this is just we're just beginning this idea. You know, maybe you could see chlorofluorocarbons or you know industrial pollutants. Maybe you could see things you know that were uh, in orbit around the planet. So I'm really excited about this because you know what it shows is that the we've, you know, we're not in the age anymore. It's time to get past snickering about aliens, right? You know, there's, there's, right. there's sort of always things like if you're talking about aliens, you're a little wacky, you know? Right. And, like, we're going to be staring at all these planets anyway. The idea that we're, ne- you know, we're, we can talk about biospheres, but you're never allowed to ever talk about exo-civilization. What, it's like, why would what, you want to do that?
0: There is a bit of the book where you talk about what an alien civilization might look like and how they might appear in... Yes
1: yeah. Well what I, yeah And what I'm saying Is that we can't really Know anything about that Right that, So I'm saying I talk about the snicker factor Right the re, And I have this When I give the talk I talk about Look it's time to get over This snicker factor uh, With aliens And I say look The reason why we have This whole and we kind of you, know, you know Snicker when we think About aliens Is because of Prosthetic foreheads Right. We've had 50 years of prosthetic <laughs> foreheads, aliens with prosthetic foreheads. Right. How many Star Trek characters have like ridges or right. little antennae? Um, and so, you know, it's that sort of like all this bad science fiction that we're sort of, you know, we sort of think we were thinking it's goofy. Right. But the important thing to understand now is that and this is you know, the, a lot of the research that right now I'm working on is there are things we can say about alien civilizations but they're not the things that we that that you know. We can't say how many sexes they have. We can't tell whether they look like rept reptiles. We can't tell whether they're communist or <laughs> capitalist. Like those, there's nothing we can do with the science we have to ask answer that question, right? Because there's just you know the biology. We don't know enough about how bi- who knows biology can work in any way. The one place that we can actually ask questions about alien civilizations that we can at least maybe make out the contours of the answer are the ones that's most relevant to us, Mm -hmm. which is climate change because we can calculate what the impact of a civilization using an energy resources, a resources on the planet. So, you know, and we can calculate what the history of that is. So this paper that we just wrote, uh, uh, that you know, I, I wrote the, uh, the Atlantic article about where, you know, we, we modeled. We basically did modeling of the interaction between a planet, uh, between a civilization that had a population and its, uh, and the state of the planet. And so we could watch the two of them evolve together. And the idea is, you know, you run thousands of these models for lots of different cases and you'll begin to sort of see, like, you know, which ones collapse, which ones go on, you know, and find sustainability. So, uh, you know, we, we can actually do a science of exo-civilizations right. or begin uh, science you of exo We talk in the book as well about the theoretical archaeology of exoplanets. <laughs> right. Because that's what you can do now. You can do, you know, I mean, it sounds outrageous and I go through in the book what that means, the theoretical archaeology of exo-civilizations. So the theory part is like, look, we don't have data but we do have, like we've been talking about, we n- understand how planets work, right? And a civilization is really just a mechanism for harvesting energy and using it and then dumping some of that waste heat back into the planet. So, you know, we can model. That that's not that's not hard, right? Um, so uh, uh, so that, that's the theoretical part. The archaeology part is you know the idea here is that that we're looking at their histories, right? We're sort of modeling, we're creating uh, uh, simulated uh, histories for all of these different civil, civilizations. So yeah, this the the theoretical part is that we're doing modeling. The archaeologies we're interested in the histories, but those histories have a direct bearing on what's happening now because what we'll be able to produce is a um, a theoretical value for the, uh, the final factor, right? Out of our models, we'll be able to see, on average, how long did the civilization last before, or civilizations last before they collapsed. If that number is 200 years... We're hosed, right? Because <laughs> it means almost nobody makes it through, right? It's very hard. Planets are just too sensitive, and, you know, some make it through, but most don't, right? If that, um, if the answer, is, and so what that means is that, you know, you've got to really be careful about what you do, your bets. you got to be careful about the bets you make in terms of what technologies you deploy to try and make it through your Anthropocene. But if, the, you know, the average lifetime is, uh, you know, 300,000 years, it means that actually, you know, there's there's wiggle room. So, uh, you know, so I think it's ironic that the one thing we can actually do about planet, about exo-civilization, turns out to be the thing that we most care about. Because, like, everybody wants to know how they have sex, but really, it doesn't really <laughs> matter, okay? You know, it's not going to change anything.
0: But knowing how long they survive, yeah, that's kind of right. important for us. I just want to know, what do they eat? What's their music? Sure. <laughs> sorry can't tell you anything i have no idea right how there, many wheels
2: it? on their skateboards have they <laughs> Yeah, they what's for can That's...
0: they make bicycles fly what can they do what are their skills does everyone
2: have jetpacks except for us when but, do they'll yeah, when... we do have them now we do have them now it's just not feasible yeah. but the,
0: that was the bit the biggest takeaway from what you said today still for me was just the when it comes to climate change just how could we not right how could it how could humans have not caused climate change right right and that's you know like i said and that's what i think once you take the astrobiological perspective you know
1: you don't need the aliens for that you can say look you just i can look at the history of the earth and i can look at all these other pla- these planets i have visited and i understand how planets work right but once you add the recognition that like you know we're pr- really probably not the first time this has happened that even elevates it even farther that yeah look Of course you triggered climate change. Now can we move
0: on from that? That's what happens. We're like single cell organisms start to exist and then they become multicellular and then they become more intelligent. And eventually a very intelligent one appears and and then then technology comes from that. And then we make the planet hotter.
1: Right, right. And so that's why it's sort of like, look, you know, I mean, you know, climate change shows how awesome we are. Look how far we've come. You know, we're at this transition. So I think, you know, that it sort of alleviates... You know what I always believe. Whenever you're in a, whenever you have a polarization, whenever you have like you know, there's two sides of the spectrum, and those they're just you know they're arguing over the same things over and over again. What you need to do is go orthogonal, right? You got to find a way. You got to go 90 degrees to that line, and then suddenly, because this is really I think the history of scientific revolutions is that. um you know, I bring up the point about like Einstein, right? When Einstein was young, there was the everybody was interested in the properties of the luminiferous ether, you know, the ether through which light propagated, <laughs> and this was the the most important issue in physics, right? What are the properties? And then you know, the Michelson Morley experiment came along, and people realized, like, oh my God, we can't even see the ether. So you know, so there was the we have to save the ether somehow. And Einstein was like, screw you, I don't care. Like, I'm just not interested in the ether. I'm not even going to work on that problem. And so he came up with these two postulates of special relativity, where like, they don't reference the ether at all. And so suddenly, when you make that kind of transition, all the old dial, all the old questions, all the old, you know, uh, dichotomies, they just... You, know, you, you don't even dress them anymore they don't that don't engage in that debate
0: didn't have to deal with Republicans <laughs> <Yeah. so. laughs>
1: well you know the bummer thing is about with you know because Republicans god it was you know Republicans started NASA a Republican started NOAA you know Republicans you know have been pro science all the way down and you know I'm just hoping that you know that this doesn't have to continue to be a Republican thing <laughs> right. because you know and what's interesting right where where climate change is already affecting us like Florida you already see those Republicans are like oh I think we got to think about this right now mm-hmm.
2: by the wait what do you say to people that point to any immediate extreme weather event as evidence like is that a dangerous thing to say is sufficient evidence because climate and weather are not the same thing
1: exactly i like, think you have to you know i mean this is the thing you know when I was talking with someone today and they were saying like look you know I'm not a scientist so what do I t- what do I tell people when they're like you know they want me you know, what what's the, the easiest way to explain or to show people that climate change is happening I'm like you don't have to you know you don't have to just like take out ask them for their cell phone and say dude tell me how this works if you can't tell me how this works then screw you you should be accepting climate change because you can't just use all the science in your life and then and, and accept it like you know oh maybe this thing is killing me right now uh, I I don't really care i'm not going to ask that question and then suddenly arbitrarily decide that this one branch of science because you know rush limbaugh said
0: you're going to you know you know, yeah. disagree
2: with consensus and everything right and everything all except science
0: except thing. climate change and vaccines they're the two <laughs> right right but i'll list. use every that's
1: you know i'm always my the analogy i always use is like people you know science is not a um uh a uh a um, uh, lunch buffet right you don't get to be like oh i'll have some of those antibiotics thank you very much and oh my arm kind of hurts can i have an mri <laughs> I sure do like flying in airplanes. And hey, how about that cell phone? That's really awesome. But climate change is a hoax, man. <laughs> you know? It's like, right. you know, come on, be consistent. You know, people. So that's why it's you know if you're not a scientist it's not your job to explain climate science to these people you just need to point out how unbelievably inconsistent they are ask them their opinion on chemotaxis or the shock wa- you know or, or the, the the magnetohydrodynamics of shockwaves. you know like why don't they have an opinion about that too they probably know just as much about that which is zero as they do about climate change so that's really where you know we got to push back and that's why you know there's a certain way you know what when it comes to arguing with climate change climate Deniers, my my fundamental recommendation is don't, because it's not an argument. It's not an argument. It's yeah. not about. It's never about the science. It's about that they think that this this science issue is aligned with a whole bunch of other things that they believe. And you know, it's just not worth it. But if you talk to somebody who's kind of like, because there's lots of people who have this, que- you know, have questions. So those you can say, hey, I heard this is what I understand. Maybe you should go look at a website. You know, tell them what you know. But people who are just hardcore, it's just it's just exhausting and boring right. and you know.
2: I just had a thought. We were talking about the the exo civilization archaeology. What if we find evidence that that final factor is a big one, and that most civilizations last for hundreds of thousands of years? Does that suddenly make us not scared and not doesn't? stops us from being urged to act no no
1: nothing starts, stops you from you know, you, we have to act the, but the, the point there is so there what you want to do is you want to look at the, the, um, the next step would then be look at the trajectories in your models of the civilizations that made it and see what is it what, what, is it? what allowed them to make it Right. Yeah. You know, what is it about, like, when did they first recognize it? What what kind of energy modality did they switch from? Did they start with fossil fuels and move to solar, or did they not? You know, did they move to wind? You know, you can put all this into the model. So that would be the thing. Once, you know, to look at the properties of the trajectories That are successful So first find out What the average lifetime is And then interrogate The successful trajectories And see what It's more like
0: Oh they invented The seatbelt They invented The crumple zone Like there Rather than just Oh we can all drive And it'll be fine We've got the car now But everyone with a car Has lived Right
1: Yeah right right That's exactly it So that's you know There's still going to be Something that makes Those those successful trajectories Successful Because there's always Going to be ones that fail So you know So that's the question So either there's going to be Lots and lots that fail And a few that are successful Or the other way around But either way you want to look at the successful ones And And also
0: probabilistically as well If we're thinking about like comparing each civilization To an individual person there will be civilizations that did everything right, right. and still died, right? Right? And there will be civilizations that did everything wrong and somehow scrape through.
1: And that's the best you can do, you know. In um, uh, you know, in many ways, my whole this whole project started with Jared Diamond's reading Jared Diamond's Collapse, you know, which I just thought was a really brilliant book. And you know, we looked at all these different civilizations on Earth that had gone undergone like rapid, you know, there's ten thousand people in your city, and two days, two decades later, there's no one there. So uh, those ones that uh, I was just trying to extract this to the Uh, to the uh, exo-civilizations but he says something that's so powerful in that book and I quote it often he says look you know civilizations need the civilizations that survive are the ones that had as much wisdom as possible in the bets they placed because it's always a bet right Right. it's always always a bet all you You can do is edge your probability up right right because the only thing nobody can absolutely predict the future so you just want as much wisdom and compassion in the the, the bets that you make
0: that seems like a great point to leave it the the thank book is called Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds and the Fate of the Earth by Adam Frank. We'll put links to that on uh, the website in the show notes. And also we'll, we'll link to the um, Atlantic article in the New York Times op-ed that you mentioned as well. we'll find those. Very good. Because yeah. they're well worth reading. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Yeah, this was, was awesome. Great, great y- you, you were great. I know our listeners will really love it. So yeah, check out the... We uh, we only scraped the surface of the book. There were so many things in the book that we didn't have time to talk about, yeah, obviously yeah. we're far more in depth. So check out the book, read it, look at his talks online and all that kind of thing. But thank you so much for joining us. This and was a lot of fun, guys. Thank you very much. You Listeners, we'll be back next week. See you soon. See you soon.